Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. And it was staggering to me how they couldn't be because like you, yeah. having gone through this experience, I kind of knew the numbers. And when you, with, it's turned around and said, look, if we need to change something or we're going to go bust. You know, this, this, it doesn't add up. So what's happening? Transpires that, that this new company was spending over a million dollars a year on Facebook advertising, which is why we got to 6,000 people. Yeah. Yep. And then Facebook changed its algorithm. Yep. And overnight, the inquiries went from bursting at the seams to virtually nothing. And when we did an audit, I, I didn't do the audit, but when we, we had this great girl that was working for us and, and her brain was really in the finances. And she decided that she'd audit how much it costs us to um, acquire a customer, to land a customer, say goodbye to a customer. It transpired that we were losing around $500 per arrival. Oh. Good morning, Tourpreneur community. We are greatly welcome this morning to welcome Steve Williams of Trunk Travel. Steve, you're based in Thailand? That's correct, Peter. Yeah, it's a pleasure to join you today. And I'm coming to you live from Bangkok. Yeah, so Steve's operation, it's both a tour operator and a DMC. And what Steve is about is creating positive impact in travel through responsible travel. So we're going to get a bit into responsible travel later but just to give you a background what steve does at the moment his unforgettable journeys for travelers who are looking to enjoy impactful once in a lifetime experiences through several countries thailand cambodia india and vietnam luckily i've been to all of them so we can we can have a bit of a chat about each destination it's mostly off the beaten track experiences people who are searching for opportunities to push the boundaries of what they're going to experience in a destination and they're going to connect with the locals, uh, the real getting in touch with people on the ground. Steve's been about for quite a while. I uh, don't know exactly how long, but he's been in this game well over a decade, maybe over 15 years. He's looked after well north of 10,000 uh, customers, both as a tour operator and as a DMC. He's got a slightly unusual story, which we're going to get into on how he ended up where he is at the moment. Or is it unusual? We're tour operators. We all fall into this from many, many, many different directions. There is no education. There is no course. There is no career path to becoming a tour operator that I know of. We all fall into it from all sorts of ways. And Steve certainly fell into it from an unusual way. So we're going to cover off how Steve got into what he's doing now. So, Steve, give us a start of the story. How do you end up sitting where you're sitting? 
Yeah, it's, it, it is a bit of a, a baffling getting there story, to be honest with you. Um, I was working, I, I'm originally from Coventry in, in the heart of England, and travel has always been one of those side passions of mine. I've always loved traveling. Ever since I was a kid, my parents always took my brother and I away on holiday. Um, and when I was at school, getting into some sort of hotel management type course was where I was really headed. Um, so travel's always been in me. It's always been something I enjoy. I, I love aviation anyway. That's a kind of a, a side geeky thing that I have going on as well. Um, so I was working with uh, within the advertising sales industry in the UK. Obviously, nothing to do with travel whatsoever. Um, and it was it was a high pressured but high paid job. So it was it was a lot of fun, um, earning a lot of money, living the high life. But I knew that inside me it was. It was slowly eating away at my soul. Um, I, it was long, long weeks. It was long nights. It was too much alcohol. It was really burning the candle at both ends. And um, my partner and I, my, my, I was with my partner at the time. We were living down in Brighton and uh, she's, she's a career police officer. And she, she and I both are big travel enthusiasts. And we decided that why don't we just take a sabbatical? We'll take six months off work. We'll go traveling. Now, for me, that was an easy thing to do. I'd worked with a company that I was with at the time for 10 years. Um, and for me to take six months off wasn't a problem. For her, on the other hand, uh, for her to get the, the required amount of time away from the force, she had to agree to uh, dedicate a set amount of her traveling time to volunteering, which I think is, is a brilliant concept that employers, more employers should embrace that type of thing. Um, and it, in all honesty, it wasn't something that I even knew existed, international volunteering travel. I, I, I never looked into it. I'd never heard of it. So I said to her, if you want to go down that path, fine. You're in charge. You can, you can command that part of the ship. The rest of it, I'll set up the itinerary. So she jumped online. She found a small uh, volunteer travel organization based in Thailand. And that, as that was going to be the start of our uh, around the world trip, we decided that we'd, we'd begin the trip with the volunteering element. Um, that meant that we spent two months in Thailand at the start of this trip. And she chose to uh, help with teaching English in some rural village schools in Thailand. Uh, and then we were going to work in a, an orphanage that was actually set up in the wake of the uh, Boxing Day tsunami that happened in Thailand in, in 2004. So I agreed to go along with that. Teaching wasn't really my thing. So I chose to work with um, domesticated elephants that were living in rural villages in Northeast Thailand. So I spent four weeks living in a village um, with very little going on. There wasn't even a village shop. It was about a 20 minute drive to the local shop. You know, there was one village telephone. There was no ATM. The roads were dirt. And these villagers just, they farmed rice. That's effectively what they did. The elephants were used as farm machinery. So they would pull the plow through the paddy fields, through the, through the rice fields. Um, and they were treated as one of the family. They were treated as a pet. They'd live in the garden, obviously, and they were exercised regularly. They were fed well. They were looked after. You know, these things are expensive. And to a, a rural community like that, they... Uh, they need to make sure that their farm machinery is, is well cared for. And what I was doing was kind of helping with local community projects. So we built 
Um, we, we built a, a water well for the village like community hall. We built some outdoor toilets, like long drops uh, within the community. Um, we did a lot of like, farming. We, built, we, we set up some um, fish ponds where we would encourage the villagers to raise the fish, sell them at market, buy more fish and, and have this sustainable kind of income that they wouldn't normally have. And that went really, really well. Um, long story short, me and the owner of the organization got on really well. We became very good friends. Uh, and he knew of my sales background. He was looking for a salesperson and he knew the impact that what I was doing was having on me. Um, I can point back to several moments whilst I was in this village where something inside me switched. And I went from being this very sort of material focused um, Brit who wanted the new iPhone, needed to drive a BMW and, and everything else, to wanting to be a part of this village community, this village life, where they had nothing and they wanted for nothing, and yet they were the happiest people on the planet. And so, again, long story short, I, I spoke to this, this guy and, and he said, look, go and finish your travels. When you're back in the UK, drop me a line. From the UK, you can deal with my inquiries, you can deal with the sales, you can help me build this organization that I started. Um, so I went off on my travels, I got back to the UK, instantly I picked up the phone and I called him up and I said, right, I'm ready to go, let's get started. Uh, and, and I was dealing 100% with the inquiries that were coming into his website. He was just forwarding them on to me. And because most of the, uh, the inquiries were coming from Brits or Europe or America, uh, I was in a far better position geographically to talk to them. I could call them up in a, in a, in a, a normal time zone uh, and we could have a chat about it, and then I could uh, persuade them to come along and join this organization. And that went really well. Um, after about three or four stop you there, Steve, could I, just because the point you made there, uh, in fact, let's go right back to the beginning. I've been to sure. Coventry. I'm surprised there's not more people joining the travel industry from Coventry, but that's, we'll just well, ignore that's that. I now live 6,000 <laughs> miles away, right? That uh, model you just described there, where obviously, you had this great volunteer travel experience. You met an operator. The operator identified your scale, sales and marketing ability and wanted you back in the UK. That may be quite unusual to quite a lot of our listeners. It's not unusual to me because I've been invited to be that person multiple times by multiple operators in Southeast Asia and India and the Himalayas and various places. Uh, but I've never, I've never done it. And I've never wanted to just be the salesperson in the the UK. Could you just talk a bit more about how that how that worked? Were you working at home? Because looking, this is way back in the mid two thousands. Were you just working from home? Did you set up an office? Did you have branding in the UK, or was it purely digital with you just answering the emails and the the phone calls and the and the rest? It of was it? yeah, no, it was it was purely digital. Um, and obviously, going back twenty years, uh, the digital wasn't at the level that it's at today. So it was really emails going to his database through his website and, and then him forwarding it onto me. We didn't even have an online uh, customer management system or anything like that. He was just forwarding me the emails. Um, he had an inquiry um, page on his website. So if anybody did uh, submit a telephone number, I'd give them a call and introduce myself and introduce the organization and give it that more personal touch. Um, so, so yeah, it was all done from... Uh, my partner's front room in Brighton and 
because I knew that he, at this point, he was only really taking about 120 volunteers a year through his organization. So sort of 10 a month. And, and it was peaks and troughs, obviously, with the high and low season. Um, so he was, wasn't really in a position to be able to give me a salary. So I was, I was, I, I had little sort of eBay side hustles going on as well, where I was flipping things on, on eBay. Um, but it was nothing like the salary that I was earning from my previous job. Um, but that didn't, through the effect that I'd had during my time as a volunteer in Thailand, I wasn't bothered. As long as we'd got enough money to pay the bills and, and feed ourselves, I knew that what I was doing ultimately was was leading to something good. Um, and so the money side of it, I never, I didn't look past the next day. It, 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 it never entered my head about where is this going long term? Is this something I'm going to do in the future? It was it was all about the here and now and, and knowing, and I put my blood, sweat and tears and 14, 16 hour days into this, uh, knowing that I wasn't gonna get paid. And but because I did it, because it just became my passion. So it was very easy, but it was all done from a living room. It was all done on my girlfriend's phone. Um, it was all done by email. And occasionally I'd go and meet people if they were local to Brighton or if they were in London, we'd, we'd arrange to meet up in a cafe in London or something like that and have a chat face to face so that they knew I was legitimate because obviously back then buying things over the internet was always that sort of gray area. Where's my money going to go and things like that. So um, that was that was the way that a lot of people found comfort was talking to me on the phone or we might even have a Skype conversation or meeting people face to face. But yeah, it was, it was, you know, nuts and bolts. So the, the sort of lessons here for our audience, uh, particularly, and we are starting to get growth in our audience coming from developing destinations. So there was quite a lot of African operators joining, quite a lot of Asian operators joining. Obviously the Europe and USA is still in the majority, but we are starting to get quite a lot of operators joining in from these dis different destinations and developing destinations. Sort of lesson here is quite a simple one, I think, is really pay attention to your customers because one of your customers could end up being a business partner or a salesperson because if they're so inspired by what you're doing and the impact you're making, they may actually end up in your business. Absolutely. Absolutely right. It's You never know who that next person that next email is coming from um it, it's it's bizarre we had senator mccain's daughter on one of our trips um she did some volunteering and we didn't know we just knew that we used to joke that was she from the family that invented the microwave french fry but it turns out that she was the daughter of senator john mccain in the usa so you you just you just don't know and um you're absolutely right you have to treat everybody like they are going to be your next investor or your next business partner or, or something like that yeah. So once you got kicked off of that, you were living day to day, like inspired day to day. You weren't worried about the financial side of it. That doesn't last forever. That's just human. No, no, that's just course. human. You're human. And either the burn off the excitement and the motivation drops or the financial necessity kicks in or a combination of both. So what happened to change? Well, yeah. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the, the guy who founded the, the organization, his name's Dan, he, he called me up one day and he said, look, you've done really well. I'm, <clears throat> I've grown the, the company exponentially in terms of bookings. Um, and he said, look, I, I appreciate I've never paid you any money, 
do you want to come over to Thailand? See if you can do it here. I can afford to give you a, a Thailand equivalent salary. Um, come here, give it a try. Three months, come over on a visa and, and see what you think. And he said, I'll set you up with a small apartment in a little town called Chatham. It's about two hours south of Bangkok, which is where he was based. And I, I obviously, I, I jumped at the chance. Um, I, had to buy, I had to buy my flight. I had to buy my visa. But he said, when you get here, you can stay with me for the first week, set you up with some digs and everything else. Um, so I said to my partner, look, I'm going to go to Thailand three months. And she knew what this meant to me. So there was no stopping me in any way. She was fully behind me. I went out to Thailand. Um, and true to his word, he set me up with uh, a, a lovely apartment overlooked the beach. And this thing was about equivalent now of about £200 a month. Uh, then it was probably half that. So we were paying nothing. Um, and he paid me then in today's money, about £500 a month, uh, just in sort of general living costs, which is fine to live on here then. Um, and it went really well, obviously, because we could work together for a certain part of the day. But my day really started um, about now, which is coming up to, well, it's about half past four in the afternoon here. So that's when my day started. When Europe and the UK woke up was when I started work. Prior to that, we'd be having meetings about how we can grow the business and so on and so on. Um, and it was really then getting into the nuts and bolts of the business and finding out how everything works uh, that I guess kind of ignited the entrepreneur side of me. And I wanted to know more about that. Um, and how does this work and how does that work? And so he was drip feeding me information about how he set it up and um, how it works from, from that side of thing. And I just found it all very, very fascinating. Um, I grew the business exponentially. So we went from about 120 a year to over 1,000 within about 12 months. And that's because he had a dedicated salesperson who had a passion for selling that product. <clears throat> um, and so then it was coming towards the end of the three months. Steve, and, could, I, Steve could I just jump in there again? I've got a bad habit of jumping in, sorry. But sure. when I hear things that are relevant for their audience i really want to ram the point home you know what i'm like uh, one of the things we get from the audience all the time is we having because they're small and they're growing and they're not producing enough income to get a salesperson or get the marketing paid something you just said you went from a hundred clients to over a thousand clients and that's multi-day trips yeah so i'm getting over to your audience here you're entrepreneurs, you're business people, you're in the game of risk. This is a risk-based, if you're in business, you're in risk. A lot from my impression from meeting literally now thousands of operators, be it digitally or face-to-face, -face, surprisingly, a lot of them are quite risk-averse. And I've never been able to build a business by being risk-averse. And, and that move of hiring a salesperson, this guy was lucky enough to get you who worked for nothing for a certain pound period of time, but even if you finance, borrowed, and scrape the money together, if you get the right person, they are going to grow your business way more than what they're costing your business rapidly. And okay. so many operators don't have that dedicated, and it can be marketing or sales, or it can be a combination of both, invariably it is a combination of both uh, there. But that individual can really launch your business because a lot of community, as you know, 
are not salespeople or not marketing people and they have no ambition to be sales or marketing people because they love the experiences, they love delivering, they love guiding. But that is why the business never grows that quickly because they're yeah. out guiding all the time. So I'm just trying to get across to the community here is like it's big boys games, big girls games, you're in business, risk has to be taken and there is no better risk than employing sales and marketing. Sorry for I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I, I think it's Dan fell very lucky with me, and I'm not I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet, but I, I had a checkable history in sales, successful sales, and I, I absolutely fell in love with what his what his goals were, what what his ethos was. It just sat right with me. I was probably one of a thousand that had gone through his organization before he found me. And yeah, I entrepreneurship, having your own business is it's risk every single minute of every single day. Um, but it's finding the right salesperson to grow a business in that short space of time. If you can find anybody who loves the product as much as I loved that product, then they don't even have to be a salesperson because the passion for it is going to come across in their voice when they talk about it. I mean, I could talk about that period of my life all day long to anybody who will listen because it was transformative. Um, and that's that's what every entrepreneur is looking for, is somebody to go through that experience, for it to transform their life to a point where they will work for free for three months to help grow that person's business. And it's, it doesn't come along very often, sadly. Um, and you might have to go through a dozen salespeople to find the one that really loves it. Uh, and when you find that one, you know, that, that's the silver bullet. Sure. So where did it go from there? You're now out in Thailand, you're working, you're bringing in the numbers over a thousand. Where did it go from there? So after three months, Dan turned around to me and he said, look, this is going really well. Um, do you really want to go back to the UK? And clearly I didn't. So I had to call my partner and explain that, sorry, I'm going to stay in Thailand. And she wasn't best pleased, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but I, I just knew that I had found my calling. I was really enjoying it. I got a new group of friends, acquaintances that, that I could call on if I needed help and so on. Um, and it went really well. So because I'd then grown uh, the business very well, so I'm fast forwarding sort of 12 months now. Um, he Dan decided that he wanted to kind of shift away from the, the experiential travel, the volunteer-based travel, and he wanted to become, he wanted to open a DMC element, um, which was going to be totally profit-focused. and because there, a lot of this was going to be sales orientated, so it'd be contacting travel outbound travel companies and so on. Um, the sales hey, side. Could you just take two minutes, one minute, and just describe? Because a lot of our operators don't understand what a DMC is. Just describe uh, and the multiple sure. definitions of a DMC in different destinations around the world. So, from a from a Southeast Asia point of view, what is a DMC? Okay, from from our point of view, um, the simplest way to describe it is that. Uh, an outbound, a large outbound group travel company, and I'm trying to think of one now. Companies like Gap 360 or Real Gap, who send out, let's say, um, backpackers on a, on a gap year, 
they would use a DMC on the ground in that particular country. So if, if gap year students are taking three weeks to come to Thailand on a budget backpacker trip to explore, to have fun, um, to, to see the culture and everything else, that tour on the ground would not be run by that travel brand. They would employ the services of DMC. DMC means Destination Management Company. Um, so the DMC would welcome the customers under the brand of the company that that backpacker booked with. So the customer doesn't feel the bump, doesn't see the crease. As far as they're concerned, they booked with Real Gap. Real Gap is looking after them on the ground whilst they're in Thailand. Um, but that's not always the case. So big companies like G Adventures, Intrepid, Explore, all of those big brands, they do this. It's a model that works. Um, we're the experts on the ground. And so they just use our expertise to help manage in areas where they might not have their own ground teams. Does that answer? So, yeah, no, for sure. That's exactly correct. Uh, but there, there is another model just for our operators, for people looking to develop outbound uh, multi-day where you're taking clients from your destination to other destinations the way steve just described it is the most common way and it's probably the easiest way and uh, contracting a dmc who's got experience on the ground it probably is the easiest way uh, because i'm relatively stupid and i've done a lot of daft things i always did it the hard way i didn't use dmcs and i would go to the destination and i would work with operators then i would contract direct to the operator on the ground missing out the DB dmc both have pros and, and negatives on them. Uh, my route of doing it was more costly to set it up, but then probably was less costly going forward. Yeah. Uh, and plus I enjoyed the travel, so that was one of the other the other reasons doing it. If you're new to outbounding or you're just starting to get into outbounding, I would recommend going through a DMC because they will save you so much pain. Agreed, agreed. So carry on. After so, the... yeah. yep. <clears throat> so um, Dan decided that he wanted to go down that route. He wanted to still have the volunteering experiences, but also he wanted to uh, branch out and become a DMC. And so the sales side of it excited me. Um, I've, I've always liked B2B sales anyway. So uh, I helped him then uh, get some new contracts. And mentioning Real Gap, that was one of the contracts. So the company then kind of grew sort of 100% overnight once real gap decided yeah they'd like to send their backpackers through this dmc the company went from a thousand to almost two and a half thousand um customers uh, over a 12-month period so the company just ballooned and it, it, it exploded and so because of that i then had to move from my little apartment in cham into bangkok because in thailand if you need to get things done and you need to get them done quickly. You have to be in. You have to be in Bangkok to be in the sticks. Means you have a lot of commuting, and and Bangkok's synonymous for a lot of things, and traffic's one of them. Um, so I decided that I would move up to Bangkok, um, help set up an office based there, employ more people, um, and obviously set things up in line with the growth that the company was experiencing. So. That's what I did then for, that was about a 12 month period that I was kind of going through those motions. Dan eventually moved up to Bangkok um, and everything was centralized in, in one office. Um, but it, it, then during this period, it dawned on me that I'm going down a route that 
wasn't the reason that I moved to Bangkok. My heart, my passion lay in the experiential um, travel, in, in working with rural communities and helping the elephants and helping supply volunteers for um, childcare and teaching English and in rural places. And so after a while, I decided to, to split with Dan and his company um, and set up my own, where I kind of... Which year was this? This was, goodness me, 2012 that I decided to go out and do it all on my own. During this period, I've been fortunate enough to have built a, um, a professional and uh, reliable um, name for myself, reputation. So I could, I could make the switch quite easily. I got the contacts. I knew what I was doing. I'd been doing the operations anyway. So it, it was an easy transition for me to go from being an employee to starting up the company all on my own. Um, the timing couldn't have been any worse because I just got married. We just had a baby and we just moved into a new house and signed the mortgage. So timing wise, it was about as bad as it gets. But in a way, that kind of was the driving force. I knew that I had to be working 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And I was bootstrapping the whole thing. I had zero investment. I had zero loans. It was all from my own savings. Um, but that just kept me focused. I was hungry. I needed to be hungry. Um, and so I, I went after it. Every Any sales inquiry that came through, they spoke to me. It didn't matter if it was 3 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning. It, they were talking to me um, because I knew that my passion was going to sell what we were doing. And we flipped it back to doing what... I did when I first arrived in Thailand as a volunteer. The difference, because volunteer travel had kind of shifted slightly, what we did was we packaged the volunteering with adventure travel. So somebody might sign up to do three weeks working with the elephants, and then we would bolt on that uh, a week's touring around Thailand. So they got the best of both. Um, and, And that's the kind of the shape that that company took. That company was called The Bamboo Project. Uh, and it was purely Thailand based. Um, and and so that's that's what I did. I jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire, literally. And how did that go? It was tough. I mean, it was a good five or six months before I got my actual first booking. I still have the email in a frame in the office. Um, and then it was about a week later that I received my first payment for that. So I, I, I knew it was tried and tested, you know, the, the proof was there. Uh, I knew we could do it. We had a basic Wix website, which was very cheap to run and it was a bit clunky. Um, but my name was, was becoming more known in those circles. So um, I was getting contacted by, by my contacts you know, we, we have these two friends who want to go and do this. And so I kind of just tailored what we were doing. We did have our sort of um, off the peg products that people could just buy. But we were also doing a little bit of FIT stuff as well because we needed to. We needed the income. Were you doing B2C and B2B at this time? We were doing purely B2C. Purely B2C. Purely B2C. Yeah, because so we knew the lead time on B2B was going to be a good six, eight, ten months where yeah. we, needed, we needed bookings now. Um, so I, I got a team of people on the ground here who, who came with me. 
they left the organization that I was working for and they decided they want to come with me. Um, and I explained I couldn't pay them a salary. They would be paid when they worked. Um, and so they they understood it and they got it and they were very loyal to me, which was which was amazing. Um, and so, yeah, the Bamboo Project, we then started looking at um, platforms, things like Tor Radar and um, go overseas and go abroad. So we were selling our products on there and that started to trickle in a few um, bookings as well. So the company was growing. The money wasn't enough for a living, but it was it was coming in so that I could pay the overheads and I could keep the business running. Um, and then I, I realized that what I need to be doing is running this as a DMC. So getting um, companies like Global Volunteer Network, like IVHQ, um, who would who were volunteer travel companies that would use a DMC. So their their clients would arrive on the ground under the IVHQ logo, for example, uh, and our team would be wearing an IVHQ logo. And so just like with the package trips, it's the same thing, but with volunteering. And so that when that started to build momentum, that started to go really well. And we were working with an organisation called Global Volunteer Network. They're New Zealand based and they were one of the founders of, of volunteer travel. Um, and they sent two people over. One of them was the founder, a guy called Colin. And he came over and he met myself and my um, marketing director, a guy called Mark. And we took him off to one of the locations where we worked with the, the elephants and where we did the English teaching. Uh, and he spent a few days there getting muddy and, and enjoying himself with the elephants and just to experience what his volunteers were experiencing. He then went back to New Zealand and about two weeks later, he called me up and he said, Steve, how do you feel about joining forces and us having everything? So we would be the marketing company, we'd be the sales company and we would be the operations company and everything would come into us under a new brand that we would create. Um, and without going into the, the, the finances of everything else, my naivety agreed that this was a really good idea. He had a 20-year history in this, and you know he was sending three, four, five thousand um, volunteers globally. And I knew from checking out his company over a long period of time that they had a very good reputation. That you know they they were solid. Um, and I, I just thought, as a, as a startup, 18 months in for a big brand to come in and say, I want to merge. I don't want to buy your company. I don't want to take you over. I want us to merge and create the mother of all volunteering experience travel companies. Um, and I just thought, you know, this, this is where we could go places. This is where we could do so much good for so many communities on the ground that um, I'd be stupid to say no. Um, and it was that naivety. Can I just ask a question? This merger, you mentioned, created a new company. So that yes. was separate from this existing big volunteer company. So it's a new legal entity. Yeah. They owned X percentage and you owned? 50-50. So 50-50 on a brand new company, though, not on, on anything Correct. to do with it. Yeah. So his, his, his company dissolved. My The company I set up dissolved and we formed a brand new company. And then we were at 50-50. Actually, we're at... There was three of us at that time. My marketing director came in as well. So there were three um, directors. He dissolved his old company, the main company? Yeah. 
Yeah, that why is no did, more. Yeah, why did it dissolve? In all honesty, I don't know, but I think he thought, and I, I, I'm. This is my opinion. I think he thought he'd taken it as far as he could, and wanted a fresher approach. Travel was at a time where it was kind of going through um, the technological changes. His website was very 1980s when he started it, and I think he saw this as a clean slate to become modern and to become fun. Um, and to build a community, he had has six hundred thousand likes on Facebook. It's it's a big. It was a big concern. So we, I could go from having three thousand likes on Facebook to six hundred thousand likes on Facebook, and I just, in my head, we could do so much good in these rural communities. Help so many more people. Help so many more elephants. Um, and I, I just, I didn't do my due diligence to the nth degree, which is, you know, and, it, and it, it's, I've paid for that in the long term. Anyway, we started off together really well. And we, we started off doing experiential tours, which was what I was saying before with the volunteering and then tagging on an adventure trip at the end of it. Um, and that went really well. And then it was decided that we kind of split these products into a, an 18 to 49 year old bracket and a 50 plus um and then this is where the marketing kind of took over and it it because marketing's never been my thing you know I, i'm seriously scared of technology um I, I i just kind of trusted that these two who had the marketing announce and the, the experience they would know how to do it and what to do and where to do it um and so i left them to it Whereas I was more operations and, and sales. When the inquiries would come in, I'd deal with that. I'm making sure that there are square pegs and square holes on the ground, um, which is what I love. I've always kind of been a problem solver, I guess. But what I didn't realize was the amount of money the company was spending on marketing. And when it was revealed to me where, uh, how, how things were going financially, that's when the cracks started to appear in the relationship between the directors. How long did that take? Uh, it was about 18 months in, and it was about two years that the big split happened. And what was the scale of the, comp the new company at that? What were you dealing with customer-wise at that point? At our peak, we probably landed about 6,000 customers in uh, four countries, which was uh, India, Thailand, Vietnam, and Cambodia. So it was pretty big. You know, we'd have five groups arrive. I mean, you're bringing 6,000 customers into Southeast Asia developing destinations. That's a substantial number of multi-day customers to come in. Absolutely, yeah. And, and bear in yeah. mind, I'd gone from 1,500 with my original um, employment to say maybe 500 when i launched my new my first business and then within 18 months from 500 to 6000 you, you know it, it really it really peaked so but now you didn't really, realize you've really peaked so, to you've got 6000 customers multi-day in southeast asia i'm running the numbers in my head and yeah. i know the profit in there but i have a sneaking feeling you're going to tell me there wasn't profit in there well, there wasn't, and it was staggering to me how there couldn't be, because like you, 
yeah. having gone through this experience, I kind of knew the numbers. And when you, we, it's turned around and said, look, if we need to change something or we're going to go bust, you know, this, this it doesn't add up. So what's happening? Transpires that, that this new company was spending over a million dollars a year on Facebook advertising, which is why we got to 6,000 people. Yeah. Yep. And then Facebook changed its algorithm. Yep. And overnight, the inquiries went from bursting at the seams to virtually nothing. And when we did an audit, I, I didn't do the audit, but when we, we had this great girl that was working for us and, and her brain was really in the finances. And she decided that she'd audit how much it costs us to um, acquire a customer, to land a customer, say goodbye to a customer. It transpired that we were losing around $500 per arrival. Oh, $500 per customer on a business doing uh, 6,000 customers. Whoa. Yeah. As well, just go and get a big bonfire, lighten it, and throwing all the money on the fire. Well, absolutely right. I mean, if, if we had completely closed the business then, we'd have been better off. Yeah. It, it was just mind-boggling. For our listeners, you know what I'm going to say here. This is a brilliant example of the busy fool syndrome. Absolutely. We go, we go fast, we go hard, we acquire customers, we grow the business, we grow the team, we grow the staff, we grow the technology, but we haven't done the basics. What is the cost of acquiring a customer? What is the profitability of a customer? That has to be done on a monthly basis at the end of your monthly accounts so you know if you're not doing monthly accounts, you need to be doing monthly accounts and you need to be checking your cost of acquiring and the profitability of their customer and profitability of their booking. Because believe me, it changes on a monthly basis because your supply in, the things you're buying in, constantly change. You haven't got fixed prices on everything. Fuel changes, electricity changes, some of your staffing changes. Everything changes on a regular basis. So your cost of acquiring changes and obviously your marketing cost which that is a substantial substantial tour operator budget for facebook ads a million dollars a year is a lot and, and the my, my one of my many beefs was we had all of our eggs in one basket and as soon as facebook changed that algorithm yeah. it wiped us out the basket had been dropped you know and, and i'd said time and time again we need to be looking at different ways of acquiring customers it cannot be all on facebook and, you know, whether or not it was ignored, I, I don't know. Because, you know, what, once all this came out of the, the wash, um, my passion had gone. I, I didn't want anything to do with this. And it was agreed over, you know, a, a quite a period of time that the only way to save the brand, the business was shot, right? But to save the brand with the 650,000 likes on Facebook, the 20,000 followers on Instagram and so on, was that we would separate the company. And I jumped at the chance of taking away the operations, which was my forte, and they would take away the marketing, which was their forte. The worst thing about this was when... their forte, as we found out. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it was great. Don't get me wrong. It was great during the time. In terms of uh, boots on the ground, I'm, I'm always looking at it from a how many people are arriving in Thailand or arriving in, in Cambodia. That side of it? I leave that to the experts. Now I have an accountant. You know, I have somebody who, who crunches the numbers. Um, but and I think all of these 
all of these arrivals were B to C. You hadn't built another B to B pipeline during that. Oh, was just 100% B to C. 100% B to C. Which yeah, is another. Have... There's another lesson here for our, for our listeners. Uh, and not everybody likes B to B. Not everybody likes B to C. But I've always found the most resilient businesses have a combination of two. Like some B2B yeah. business and some B2C business. Uh, if you 100% B2C, you better be a good marketer. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and and do it in as many channels as you can possibly do. Because, yeah. like, like I say, the, the Facebook algorithm lesson was a hard lesson to learn. Um, but, yeah, one, one of the guys that came from this New Zealand company with Colin was a chartered accountant. And so you'd think, well, he could be the numbers guy, right? He'd be the one who would know where it's going and where it's not. Um, I don't know what happened there. But so, so yeah, so... Um, the, the lesson there, Steve, is communication. The, the, the team, if you're running a business of that scale and that size, looking after 6,000 multi-day customers, there has to be regular monthly meetings between the senior team with accounts on the table, emailed to people pre the meeting. And so everybody gets their questions in advance and you sit down and you address it as it's happening. But, but I'm a realist. I know what normally happens is it's normally three months, six months, or the end of a year when people yeah. have that meeting, look back, and you can't address it then because it's happened. And yeah, then you're in a rescue situation of digging out a whole situation rather than addressing it when it's actually happening. Yeah. We, we, had, we had one of those meetings, and that was yeah. towards the beginning of the partnership. So um, it really didn't have any impact. There was nothing really to say, so it was a bit pointless. But then I think it was a case of either too afraid to bring it to the table or didn't quite understand the situation the business was in, so couldn't therefore print a report on it. You know, yeah. so, um, so yeah, so, so I decided that I was going to take my operations away and I was going to go back to effectively the start of the Bamboo Project, which was my first business, and they would take the marketing. And they would employ me, Trunk Travel, as their DMC. So there's still the, the relationship. Um, oh, yeah. We get paid a set amount per customer, yada, yada. Um, and then I then had to go back to rebuilding uh, relationships with, with new suppliers, whether it's B2C or B2B. Um, and, and like you quite rightly say, I think to have a combination of the two is key. Unless what date, you are... What date did this happen? When did you start Trunk Travel? Uh, so the split kind of came about in November 2019, and then I officially launched Trunk Travel at the end of February, beginning of March 2020. And was that not when COVID started? Yeah. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> yeah. Again, timing, you see. I started business when we're married, have a baby and a mortgage. Start my next yeah. business. So if anybody wants a business partner, don't come to me. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, that kind of, the dip gave me an opportunity to get on my ducks in a row and forced us to look at different avenues of revenue. Yeah. Because obviously we weren't going to be relying on um, boots on the ground. That wasn't, simply wasn't going to happen. Um, so it forced us to look at different avenues. And we did that quite successfully. And then again, because of the relation, the um, the reputation that I had in the industry, in God, I think we've been going back two weeks. I got a call from a, a company that are based in New Zealand and the States, and they said, 
yeah, 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 COVID, COVID, but we know we can send people to Thailand. Can you take a group through Thailand for 10 weeks during COVID? They know they've got to quarantine for two weeks, um, but we, we've been told that you can handle it. And so we had four groups in 2020 that, went, that came with us through COVID. And our team had to navigate those waters. And there were interprovincial lockdowns happening yeah, all yeah. the time with no notice. And so our team were working 24-7 for 10 weeks, but we were paid quite well for doing it. So that kind of kept us going. And then another pivot was to, to enter Thailand. You had to jump through so many hoops. Visas, the certificate of entry, which then became the Thailand Pass. You had to book into certain hotels for quarantine. We decided that we could do that and we could monetize that. Um, and that became very profitable for us. Again, it was hard work and we only had a small team at the time. Yeah. But it, it, it proved to be um, a blessing. And it also gave me the opportunity to network properly because I wasn't confined to my desk. I could be contacting other tour operators, new vendors, new partners, um, because we were still going and we had customers in country. People were coming to me saying, how are you doing this? How, how do you have customers in country? Um, so it was, although it was obviously a horrendous time globally in terms of a, from a selfish business perspective, it, it benefited us, bizarrely. Yeah. Yeah, that's you're not. I've spoke to so many operators, and the vast majority were impacted ne negatively, obviously. But but there is a percentage of operators that benefited significantly yeah. uh, during COVID. Uh, some of my operations, I was an op still operating during it, uh, got trashed, and the Moroccan operation was trashed. Yeah. Well, my other operation boomed because we had 65 million people locked in in the UK, but they could get out in the UK for certain times, but they couldn't get out yeah. of the country. So. There was winners and losers in, in COVID, and there still is. There is this thing that there's an assumption that COVID's away, and it, it's still having impact in so many destinations around the world. Not so much Europe, not so much the US. Some of the South American destinations haven't recovered. Some Certainly the Caribbean destinations haven't recovered. I know Asia as a whole hasn't recovered to anywhere near the numbers it was doing previously. So COVID still has a big legacy hangover for certain destinations. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, so that, well, that's, I mean, that's my story. It's been a graft, but it, I wouldn't change it for the world. And I think in terms of lessons, I absolutely, to this day, I still look back and remember my time as a volunteer and how it completely transformed my life. And that is what gave me the passion and the impetus to take the risks and to gamble and to gamble with everything you know if 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 everything went wrong for me in thailand i i'd have to leave my family behind it's it's not a case of just moving on to the next business idea i'd have to leave my family behind my visa is dependent on this and and everything else so um take the risks it, we're in the business of risk uh, and you, you have to you have to just grab it with both hands and and, and treat it as part of your business and looking forward, uh, obviously, I know Asia's still suffering, but we are open again. Thailand's open again. People are starting to come back. What's the what's your view on the looking for on? There's an economic crisis in the world coming. 
already here, but it's coming worse. What's your view going forward? <clears throat> so in the last six months, I've signed MOUs with uh, seven new suppliers for 2023 and onwards. In, we're getting uh, an insane amount of inquiries now for FIT stuff, which is kind of new for us. It's, previously, it's always been um, groups, private groups and um, sort of joining groups. Now we're getting a lot of FIT stuff. So that's like yeah. independent travel, small families and mice as well as as people have, because they know that we're we're still going and that we've been around um a lot of mice inquiries as well so we're, we're developing all of these new areas of business um so it, it's it's looking really good we are in the middle of that credit crunch right now which we knew was coming but looking forward to uh, q1 of 2023 um i'm i'm mildly excited about what's what's going to happen from jam one has covid taken out quite a bit of your competition who haven't returned since the country opened up again or is I that do, yeah i do i mean eight million people were, were directly affected by the tourism closures in thailand yeah. uh, and a lot of that were the smaller independent operators um and it was just by the, the grace of god that we kept going you know, we were we were in the right place at the right time, um, and so from being a very small fish in a massive pond, that pond has reduced significantly, and we've grown a little bit. So that gives us um, a bigger a bigger opportunity. And like I say, you know, we we I use the opportunity to make more contacts, um, and a lot of other tour operators who haven't been able to employ new staff to replace those they had to get rid of are sending us inquiries you know they're, they're, they're complaining that they don't have the manpower and bandwidth to deal with this steve you know if you give me a bit of a kickback on a commission can you take this on and we'd be glad to yep obviously yep. it's a thing when you come out of a disaster like that and a lot of the supplies going it does give you a unique opportunity to big win market share that would yep. have been much harder to win if things had been great and that's Absolutely. just the, the reality of business. Yeah. If you're the if you're the last man standing and the last operator standing, you you end up winning. Obviously, there's a lot of operators still standing, but I did I did think from my own contacts that a lot of people had gone out of business and they're not opening up again. They're just it's gone. That's right. I mean, the, the big boys are still here, um, but you know, to, to to be rubbing shoulders with them now, it kind of. It's it's a pat on the back for everybody in the team who stuck with us. We obviously we had to um, we had to reduce salaries, we had to reduce working hours. We went through all the working from home thing. It was it was purgatory for everybody, uh, but they stuck with it, and they could see that we're still going, and so they put their faith in us, and you know we'll we'll be forever thankful for that. Um, so so yeah, I think from twenty twenty three is looking exciting, exciting. What's your biggest challenges? Obviously, you're exciting going forward. Good place. Hopefully, the world doesn't go as mad as it could. And a lot more people to go back to Southeast Asia. It's going to always be a draw. So the numbers will increase. They will get back up. I'm not saying they'll get back to where they were quickly, but they will get back up. It's always going to be a draw. What do you foresee as the challenges for you going forward? Infrastructure is, um, is an issue right now. And... Uh, me being a complete technophobe, I, I 
I'm kind of stuck. I mean, I'm between the rock and the hard place at the moment because I need to deal with the inquiries that we're getting. Um, that's where my skills are, which is, means it's taking me away from building the infrastructure for the website, which means people are going to the website and it's not as good as it should be, which gives off a, a kind of a, a slightly worrying brand image. Um, so, and this credit crunch that we're going through. Infra infrastructure, tech, and credit crunch. I think it's going to be one of those things. It's always going to be with every operator from here till eternity. Um, but yeah, those right now are my three big. I'm not worried about the inquiries. I'm not worried about the business coming in because that's that's working. Um, it's, it's making sure everything's in place is my biggest concern right now. Yeah, I think I've yet to speak to an operator who's not got questions or concerns about technology of one sort, whether it's the website, whether it's booking systems, whether it's marketing systems. It's, yeah. it's rare to find an operator that is totally happy with that setup. Uh, yeah. And it's also quite rare at the moment to find an operator that's totally, totally happy with credit and money and cash flow at the moment as well. Hopefully that will be addressed over the next 18 months as people start getting back on their feet and start to produce good money again. So that was super super interesting steve thanks very much for going through that you've had a hell of a journey uh oh, you very welcome you know I, but it's not huge I lessons wouldn't it, i wouldn't change it one bit like you say huge lessons you know, and like you said at the start i didn't go to school to learn this i i learned on the job i did my apprenticeship and then i've kind of worked my way up making mistakes and we make mistakes every single day and i don't care because we learn from them and, and that's the approach we have to take and that goes to our community the reason we're here people like steve have been a bit a while i've been a bit a while we've made so many mistakes that we're letting the community know about all of these mistakes that's the purpose so people in the community can learn quicker than we had to do when we dropped into this industry and we had to go through the learning journey which was long and mistake ridden and spending a lot of cash and losing a lot of cash and all sorts of painful things the community is here to speed up your journey to do the right things to get a sustainable operation that is profitable quicker. That, that's the whole reason we're doing these podcasts and these courses and all the rest of it. So, Steve, thanks very much for coming on to Tupreneur pod, pod, Podcast. I think you're a first, maybe second for Thailand. I think you're first, actually. We'll, we'll check on that. But thanks very much. That's been fascinating. Uh, very and I, if I'm back out in Thailand, which no doubt I will be, I'll be certainly coming to see you. Excellent. Good man. I'm looking forward to it already.